Welcome to the TAGT podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT podcast. This podcast was recorded at the 2023 TAGT Gifted Plus Equity Conference. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and grab your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today we're chatting with Robin Green and Michelle Dubois. Dr. Robin Green is the Supervisor of Gifted Education for the Colorado Department of Education. Dr. Green conducts state, national, and international professional learning on diverse gifted students. She recently won the National Association of Gifted Children's Professional Learning Network Award for Culturally Responsive Gifted Education. Michelle Pacheco Dubois, a doctor as well, is the Gifted and Talented Coordinator for the Boulder Valley School District. Dr. Dubois conducts professional learning nationally focusing on culturally linguistic, linguistically diverse and twice exceptional learners. She's been recognized by the Colorado House of Representatives for her work with culturally and linguistic diverse learners. And Dr. Green and Dr. Dubois are the authors of Supporting Gifted ELLs in the Latinx Community in Leading Culturally Responsive Gifted Programs. Welcome. Thank you. We're so glad you're here on the podcast. You're here presenting uh, at TAGT Gifted Plus. And how's your experience so far? It's been wonderful. It's been so great to be back home. I mean, we are Texas girls. That's what Michelle and I say, and we are born here. And, you know, to be back home, we've had our eye on this conference for a little while. So to get a chance to be back here and hear from the different presenters has been incredible. And to see what you guys are doing in Texas has been phenomenal. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure to be here and to meet so many uh, people that we, um, that we know in our profession and then also just to share our expertise with everyone. And we love that you're doing that. That's one of the great things about conferences that TAGT puts on is that you get to hear from experts from all over the country. So can we maybe just start with that? I know we were talking earlier, y'all are both born in Texas, but went out to Colorado. One of the things that I'm always interested in is when we're talking about a different state, what's kind of the current status of GT, maybe in comparison to Texas, which you know, that, that's just always interesting because I feel like sometimes we get in our bubble here where we think, hey, this is great or this is going poorly. And sometimes you just want that context of how things are going in other states. So tell us a little bit about GT in Colorado, if you can. Well, I think Robin will be able to answer that question a little bit better because she works for the Colorado Department of Education. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, but and I, I just, will answer what I, what I, I know. You go first. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that we uh, find that's amazing what's happening here in Texas is that there are actual teachers who are getting certification like and getting credits and training that's required to teach students. And we don't have, we have that opportunity in mm. Colorado, but it's not required. Um, so that system I think is really amazing and would love to see it implemented. But we also have state funding in Colorado, which is also great. So I'll let you finish out since you know all the details we're going to get <laughs> the power of education. Oh, thanks, Michelle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I remember when I moved up from Texas to Colorado, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so great because Colorado has so many, you know, like George Betts and, you know, leading professors, and I was so excited, and I thought, you know, Colorado's really going to be leading the nation in a lot of the work, and, and we really are in many ways, and 
when I got up there, I was expecting all of our teachers to be certified and endorsed in the way that in Texas, if you have any gifted students in your classroom, you have to have that minimum 30 hours, mm -hmm. or at least we used to, you yeah. know, in that training. And then, um, you know, you had to keep up with your six hours at the time. Right. And, you know, I got to Colorado and, and that wasn't a thing. And I remember saying, wait a second, we, we have a law supporting gifted learners with the Exceptional Children's Education Act. We have multiple pathways for endorsement, but it's not a requirement. I don't understand. And that's when I was a teacher at the time. Mm. And uh, so now being as part of like the State Department, the Department of Education, seeing like the behind the scenes and, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. Right. You know, it's it's been pretty fascinating because we have in Colorado uh, right now it's a partially funded mandate. It's going to be a fully funded mandate, which we're really excited about. In five years, the legislature just passed uh, the funding to make sure that our universal screener is fully funded and we have a uh, half up to half time FTE, full-time equivalency, uh, qualified personnel grant. So whoever is over the gifted and talented program mm -hmm. in our administrative unit, we've got about 64 of those in Colorado, that that person is considered highly qualified. So uh, that they've got their endorsement in gifted education and they've got their training in gifted education. So that's been really exciting that our legislature has provided that funding for us and that we do have the mandate. Like, So if you're going to do universal screening, which we put in our bills, that we we have the funding to support you. Right. Um, so, so I think that's the piece too, like the difference between Colorado and Texas is that we do now have, we have the funds to support those things. Mm -hmm. you know, and now what we're trying to look forward to, to doing is seeing how can we work at getting our teachers licensed in a way or getting those hours in to support our gifted learners and our neurodiverse learners right. in the same way that we support our multilingual learners mm -hmm. in the same way we support our special education learners because those pieces are there for those learners. They're not there for gifted. And so that's, that's the next piece. But yeah, I mean, we're pretty lucky that we've got the Exceptional Children's Education Act and it provides state protections for gifted learners. And we have advanced learning plans where every student has to have an academic goal based on standards. They could be industry standards, they could be state standards, and they have to have an academic, uh, affective goal, so a social emotional goal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's great. Just hearing you break that down, I mean, there's so many elements within that that I think people don't understand. Like, there are different states in different places when it comes to what's written into law, what is required but not really in law, that there's, sometimes there's expectations. Yes. And there's, sometimes there's expectations where there's no funding, and you know, sometimes there's combinations of all that. So that was a big aha moment for me. And so I appreciate you sharing that of just what's going on in Colorado. It seems like some exciting stuff, and it seems like y'all are really headed in a cool place. Yeah, we, I think we do have a lot of exciting, exciting things happening. And, you know, the, the other piece is, you know, our laws have been written to where they really do look to try to find students who have potential. And that's the way in which the definition has been written. The laws are gray enough, which makes some of us feel uncomfortable right. from time to time because we want some some of our some of our people want that black and white. 
but our kids are not black and white. Mm. And so, you know, to find that body of evidence to, to identify them, our laws are actually set up to support that. And so the guidance that's coming out of our office, I'm super excited about because we, we work on creating that body of evidence to say, hey, you, you can look at our students differently and the law that is there will help support that and identify them and get them programming. So mm. it's pretty exciting. And I'm super excited because it gives my district like an extra $50,000. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's but a big yeah, deal. Right. Yeah. As a highly qualified person too, and then you've got, you know, your universal screening. Mm-hmm. She, so the universal screening is also through a grant. So every district has to apply through a grant. Okay. But it's, and, and the districts get a portion of that grant, but they pretty much get about they get about 65 to 75 percent of what they've asked for but that's right now it'll again it'll be fully funded Mm. um in about five years yeah so um so michelle asks for you know a certain amount and she gets a good portion of that um and then she can hire people and Mm -hmm. test yeah and again I, i don't think people realize that just the process you described is what's happening. And I know there's conversations going on in our state with several things with universal screeners, how those get funded and everything. So yeah. it's just everybody's kind of on a different pace. And then that ends up impacting what you do, what is a Boulder Valley school district, right? Mm-hmm. And so as, as being the practitioner, the coordinator on that level, um, do you, how do you feel about the, the state of GT in terms of you know, how you're being supported, how you play that out in your district, how you get support from maybe other leadership in your district. What is that dynamic like there? So Boulder Valley is in a unique environment, I would say, where we live. We live um, where CU is, University of Colorado. Okay. That's a whole area. And we have so many different organizations that are like... N car, U car, there's lots of cars there. And <laughs> including Teslas. Yes. I mean, it's just really this unique environment. Like, I met a gravity scientist the other day, and I, I was like, what? So there's just so many brilliant people in that area that our, our GT um, percentage is at 17% for our district. Okay, wow. Which in this state is about 7.2, I mm-hmm. think, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a really high percentage of these students. And... Um, Currently, I would say that we feel really supported by the state. We just had a review come in from the state to give us some recommendations about what we can do. Oh. The thing that my district doesn't feel like we're really supported on is funding for the state. So we're mm. really excited to hear this portion of the funding coming into place. Right. Um, but, yeah. So the potential is there. The growth is right. there. It seems like we're headed in that direction. It does. It does. Um, which, again, I think is a great contrast for any educator who's in gifted education here in the state of Texas is we've had our battles with funding, especially over the past several years. What does that look like? Where is it going? Um, so I appreciate you all sharing that insight. I'm going to say, Michelle and I, were we were directors at the same time as well. And, Michelle, I know one of the things that Michael just asked us about was – the the relationship with administration as well and so each of our administrative units so those of us above us like in senior leadership Mm -hmm. are supposed to put in funds as well and that's written into the rule Mm. within our uh, state statute so in addition to the state having these grant funds available each district so boulder valley Mm -hmm. has to put in a portion and they can decide so that's where it's not always fair is that you know, right. it's not always equitable. You know, some districts have more money than others, mm. and so they'll put more, or they believe in gifted, right? right? Like you believe in the tooth fairy, right? They believe <laughs> in gifted differently. So the AU will 
they provide a portion of funds and Boulder does a really good job mm. with that. And I'm not saying that just because she's here. They, they really do. <laughs> uh, but the burden does get placed on them to do that. Uh, the same thing with Denver. Denver did a really great job of giving additional funding and structures and supports. However, I see now the whole state. And in going across the state, the state, what I have really appreciated and been able to take back is say, hey, listen, this is what's happening out in Akron. This is what's happening mm. out mm -hmm. in Mesa. How can we make sure and how can I help be the voice of these other towns when they're, they don't have the same structures that Boulder has or Denver had, mm. you know, because they don't have the same resources. And, you know, 60% of our state is rural. And so those resources, as much as we try to spread out and get those grants and you know put those things out there we i feel like we're pretty unique mm -hmm. in in that support uh from our administrators when when i was a director and as michelle is a director mm -hmm. it's not all it's not like that across the state yeah and again i think you're probably getting some amens from our audience too because we have very different districts and districts approach and approaches in the, in the state of texas in terms of you know, what funding, what personnel, that's been fun with just this podcast is finding out the wider array of different amounts of personnel relative to funding because who's moving what and different approaches. So it's exciting. It's exciting to hear that there's other uh, states striving for growth there. And again, I know y'all are presenting on something different, but I, I, it, yeah. I'm excited to learn more about other states and what they're doing yeah. with this. So absolutely. So that's great. And, and to speak and to bring it into what y'all are presenting on, we're talking about culturally responsive, gifted frameworks here. So transitioning to that, give me, a, give me your uh, elevator speech for why that is so important to keep in mind. If you're an educator out there saying, hey, I'm interested, but what does that mean? Well, that means that we're looking for our, each person, each student in the classroom to feel like they belong to feel like they're reading things about them, their materials about them, that they see a teacher who looks like them, that they feel like they're accepted for their identity, right? And that they, other students in the classroom understand that their identities are different or are the same, mm -hmm. or, you know, so the students are included. Cultural responsiveness, right? Looking at things on the walls that look like your culture, you know, the material you're reading. So that's what we're trying to do is that, trying to take the white majority culture and expand it into other cultures so we have that appreciation and also students are are accepted and they're feeling like they're moving forward and they're learning mm -hmm. right so that's what our work is about is about inclusion mm -hmm. and that also transfers over to our systems and structures so everything from budget to how we do professional learning to how we think about hiring that's all part of the culturally responsive framework and how we how we program and so that cult, that inclusion and, and belonging that sense of belonging it, it starts with us as educators our our bias our understanding of ourselves and our cultural identity and taking that out to the system so that our students and our teachers frankly and our can, families and our families can feel like they belong mm. so that's, that's one of the things that piqued my interest when looking at that, that you'll kind of dive into in your different sessions here, not just the, the application and the activities, but it is the system. So when you think of systems and a starting point, if you're, you know, a, a, a GT coordinator listening to this, what are the, some of the systems that they need to start evaluating and maybe a starting point to be able to have this conversation? 
So I think the first starting point is themselves, hmm. right? Looking at your own cultural identity. Do you know who you are? Do you know if you have biases, right? Do you know if you're making microaggressions against your students? Probably. What is a microaggression, right? Just even the terminology, starting with that, and then looking at where you are on the continuum of cultural competence. Hmm. I would say that, and that's really where we start always uh, with our work, and that is understanding that no matter what our culture, no matter who we are, what our identity is, we all have biases, no matter our background. I mean, that's, that's who we are as people, and that was done, you know, like evolutionary or biologically. We have biases and stereotypes. There are reasons, and we have to actively identify them and interrupt them so that our students can get what they need, so that our teachers and families can get what they need. And that piece is really the core of that work, along with actively being anti-racist. So this culturally responsive piece, the through line is being anti-racist. So we can be culturally responsive, but if we're not acting, if we're not being action-oriented, then it's great, we're doing really good, pretty things, <laughs> but how do we know we're making a difference? You know, how are we being upstanders, especially when still across the country the majority of teachers look like me. I am a white woman. You know? um, I grew mm -hmm. up in situational poverty and you know, so I have that background and that frame of reference and when you look at me, I am a white woman. And I have, I have white privilege and that is something that I have to acknowledge. That does not take away from the fact of any of the challenges that I grew up with. But that does give me a different perspective. And each one of those perspectives influences how I see my classroom. And that's for, for all of us, whether you're Latina, whether you're African American. How do we bring those, those and honor the cultures of those around us and make sure that it's not just my perspective that gets shown in the classroom. And I am not a white woman. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. <laughs> so I, I don't have that type of privilege. But I'm Latina. Uh, my parents are migrant workers. And I'm first generation college, as is Robin. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a son who's twice exceptional. He has autism. So a lot of different perspectives I, I feel like I'm really grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I've had um, you know challenges too with all those perspectives mm -hmm. as well. But those strengths I really appreciate mm -hmm. because I can look at so many different um, ways of looking at kids and looking at people mm -hmm. and appreciate people for who they are. But then I also have to catch myself sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just microaggression. I just did that to somebody. Mm -hmm. So it's a rethink, Michelle, and, and refocus and how can you, you know, make yourself a, a better person. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like you're, you're valuing people, you're valuing how they grew up, you're understanding that and reflecting upon that. How does that conversation then come into the, the gifted and talented world? As practitioners of GT, you know, you start talking about the systems there specifically. Where do you think the culturally responsive angle of GT really is important for educators to consider? Well, I think if you look at GT, I mean, it's pretty much predominantly white right, which is a issue, right, that we've been fighting for a long time. And I think that when you bring in that lens of being culturally responsive, it gives it more of an in-depth look and, and also um, just looking at yourself once again, coming back to yourself, why is it all predominantly white, mm. right? Is that because people aren't 
looking at other kids or just think that that's what that is, just white. So I think some of that plays into play and then um, just really trying to follow in the footsteps of like, you know, the Fords, Dr. Donna Ford and mm. Shel Trotman, you know, all those people that came before us and are doing all such great work. And have been doing this work mm. before us, you know, Jaime Castellano, mm -hmm. Dina Barrales, uh, Joy Lawson Davis, Martin Jenkins, mm. you know, and, and making James sure. James Banks. James Banks, right. who's, you know, doing the culturally responsive pedagogy, Geneva Gay. So when we talk about taking the culturally responsive pedagogical practices of Geneva Gay, right, and blending that, which, again, Dr. Ford, Michelle mm -hmm. Fraser, Trotman Scott. Yeah, it's they, not new work. Yeah, we didn't not, invent it. Yeah, we, and, and then we, in <laughs> fact, we try to make sure we honor that and mm. name that because. You know, we, we feel very fortunate and blessed to be able to share this work. Um, but what we're doing is we, we're, take, we we're taking what they've done and saying, hey, this is how we're applying it to, our, to what we've done, you know? And um, these brilliant practitioners and scholars who have come before us have been working on this and, and screaming this loudly hmm. for decades, you know? And we want to make sure that, you know, their voices get lifted up as well. And so taking that culturally responsive approach, blending it with best practices in gifted education. So like depth and complexity, mm -hmm. or compacting, or um, you know, where we're doing- space the, learning. Yeah, yeah, and higher order thinking, and things like that, which you know, are really good practices for everybody in that right. sense. You know, blending those two together while honoring the student's culture First and foremost, seeing their identity, that is the key. And that shows up, a lot of like Christina um, Collins' work mm -hmm, right. in her multicultural MTSS mm -hmm. piece that she does, where she takes the Bloom's Banks matrix and she has cultural identity embedded in that. Yeah, that's All amazing. Of that blended together. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a lot, it's not, mm. uh, but it is deep. And you have to spend the time really wanting to get to know yourself, but wanting to get to know your community and be intentional about setting up the space. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the other piece with that is knowing that you're going to make mistakes. You know, we talked about, you know, making mistakes earlier, uh -huh. you know, make a lot of mistakes in this work and that's okay. You can fail, you can fail mm -hmm. forward, mm -hmm. but pick yourself up, <laughs> you know, and know that you're going to keep making mistakes. Um, I think sometimes we get afraid. We don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. But this work is messy and we have to be willing to make those mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if we hurt somebody, if we, if we may have a microaggression, we've got to own it. We've got to mm -hmm. say sorry and I'm going to do better next time. But that's also part of this work, which is why we talk about it. We're trying to repair institutionalized racism. That's what we're trying to do. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. So and it makes me think just hearing kind of your your heart behind it and what you're striving for. How is the response as you're going, as you're presenting, as you're doing your work in Colorado? How is the response in the midst of that? Because that's part of this work, too, is understanding how people hear all this and move forward with it, especially in a, you know, especially in our culture today. So how has that been on y'all's end? Well, you know, the, our book is titled Leading Culture Responsive Gifted Programs, right, which has not been termed in that way before. Um, I did have someone just recently say, well, that's, that's interesting new verbiage. And I didn't respond. It was actually on Facebook. 
but I, I was thinking it's not new verbiage. Hmm. Um, we're putting with gift education, but the verbiage is not new. Um, and yes, it is very interesting, right? Is what I wanted to respond and then go off and give this whole list of why, but I didn't. Um, but I think there's a verbiage has been accepted where we live, I think, really well. Um, what do you think? So I think one of the beauties about being at the state is understanding how to talk about equity in a way in which different communities can come together around the word equity. Because equity can be such, mm -hmm. and it's, in my not-so-humble opinion, <laughs> shouldn't be such a divisive word. And yet, sometimes it is. And it's been, as, as, you, as you know, as we're seeing across the country, it can be this sort of, this flashpoint. Mm. Right? And when we talk about equity and culture and, you know, and saying everybody has a culture, but when people hear culture, they think, you know, of only, or they think of whatever it is mm -hmm. that is going to scare them sometimes, right? And, and a fear that they're going to miss out on something. And in working at the state, what I've learned is when we talk about equity, sometimes I have to use different terms. Yeah. Sometimes I have to talk about, instead, we talked about this yesterday in our session, about you know, what is it that you're seeing that some students aren't getting or some yeah. teachers aren't getting? Who's missing out? Whose voice is missing from the table? And sometimes that's rural, right? And how, where's the disproportionality? And so when we go around and we talk about this, while we've been well-received in the areas that we've gone into to talk about culturally responsive, I'm finding that I'm flexing my style and how I bring this up in other areas. So I won't just necessarily launch into mm -hmm. talking about white supremacist you know, institutions. Um, you know, and I, I then immediately say, when I bring that up, I say, and I'm not talking about the, the KKK, I'm not talking about, you know, that I'm talking about institutionalized racism, but I'm I temper that depending on where I'm going because I, I need to make sure that my audience is going to be able to hear and receive it. Mm. Culturally responsive tends to be heard. Um, that's something that we're leading at the state. We're saying we will lead the nation in providing culturally responsive, high impact culturally responsive identification and programming, that's our big vision and mission at the state. And we have to say, well, what does that look like in a mostly white rural place? Well, every place has a culture. So what does that look like? And mm -hmm. so we break it down that way. So I think it's basically us trying to unpack the words in certain areas. Uh, but we joked that, you know, our book would probably be banned in Florida. Just from the title alone, you know, it might even be banned here in our home state. Um, and it's okay, we still love you. Uh, you know, uh, but but in our we we feel pretty fortunate because it's been pretty much uh, well received. And of course, we came to an equity conference, so it's right. you know we knew we'd have some like-minded individuals. But as we're getting out of our own vacuum, because that's what we've been in. Yeah. You know, and as I've been kind of floating this language, and I've seen how people kind of sometimes sometimes bristle when they hear the word culturally responsive. So I'm like, tell me what that reaction was about. Like, talk to me. Mm -hmm. you know, and then really explaining, everybody has a culture. And I think sometimes, again, I'm just going to speak from my perspective, not the state, Robin Green, uh -huh. white woman here. 
I think white people don't understand that, some white people don't understand that we have a culture and that's because it's the dominant culture. So it's everywhere. Mm. And, and if that's kind of bristling with some people right now, just take a moment, take a deep breath and kind of unpack that as to why that is. Um, and that's okay if it is, but just think about it because that's hard for a lot of, a lot of people to think about. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and I feel fortunate where I work in the Boulder Valley School District. Um, we are all about equity and we talk about it and we've got all these committees and we read books and it's like a whole push forward. We've got an mm -hmm. equity youth council and so it's been really great to be in an environment that it's really well received. Yeah, and I'm sure that's a big difference maker. And, and kind of as I hear this, if, you know, kind of regardless of where you're at with these different ideas that we're trying to tackle in this conversation, I do think the point y'all were making earlier of this is not necessarily something brand new. There's researchers, some brilliant people who've really jumped into this for decades. And I just want to encourage people to, to do kind of what you're saying is reflect upon that. Look into this, read these books, read y'all's book, and, you know, see how that can impact you know, our perspective on things. What can we learn? I feel like there's something in here that we can all get together on, and I don't want people to miss those opportunities. So hopefully, and I think conversations like this are encouragement to do that. Uh, uh, having conferences like this, I think, are yes. encouraging to do that. No matter how you enter into this space, I feel like there's a cool conversation to be had, yeah. you know. Uh, so speaking of which, y'all are talking a little bit about some of those activities as well that can help uh, that you're getting our participants to engage in. What are some activities that y'all would recommend uh, to get into that culturally responsive space? I mean, y'all have talked about several, I guess, but you know, are there any other activities that come to mind? I think one of my favorite activities, it's not a classroom activity, but it ties into family engagement, hmm. is that um, we've created it at our district, um, a GT family, not a council, but a GT family Latinx events. And so I always have the dream of bringing together our GT Latinx families and um, getting them to know each other and to build like a community because that's really what it's about relationships, right? Mm -hmm. When you're talking about um, that culture. And so we're in our second year now where we have about, let's say, about 32 families that come together and we hold events for them. Um, just like things about 4-H, we hold like uh, summer resources types of booths activities. We have like a big celebration. We have like a dance coach come in and do some Latino types of dances mm -hmm. uh, and then food. And, and it's just been really great to see that develop because it's the second year. The first year, they weren't really talking to each other. They're more isolated. And then this last year, they've started to develop relationships. And so I really like that work because they're talking to each other and then they're going to be talking to other families, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, going to help us bring up identification and then also a communication with these families. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really been, I'm really proud of that work. Yeah. We did a GT Black Family Advisory in Denver uh, and reached out to the community and talked about how had the department done harm to the community? Like, what did we need to know about the community? How can we make sure that we're identifying and programming culturally responsibly, you know, culturally? and culturally and responsibly for our learners. But it was really that moment of where we had to attend a healing with the department and with the community. And it was that same moment where we're like, you know, like we're bringing people from all over the district together to talk to one another. And it's like, wait, I'm not the only person here who's got a child that's gifted, you know, and, mm -hmm. and having them connect because what we learned was the community saying, I'm gonna learn a lot more from 
my community and I'm going to trust them, then I'm going to trust you, mm-hmm. administration. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, so really kind of figuring out what family pieces are going to be helpful and, and understanding what the community needs. Uh, I think then also the classroom, uh, you know, our speaker talked about it yesterday, like doing that classroom census. Uh, mm. We call them equity audits, which sounds a little bit more like formal, but, you know, doing uh, some equity look force. So looking at who's represented on the, the walls, who's represented in the books, who's, and you can do that. You can do it with a quick little checklist, but as like uh, we were talking with someone in our session yesterday, she was saying, you, know, you also have to want to be careful because if you just do a checklist, then people can go, oh, check, 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 right. I'm done. Right. You know, and, and so really the piece with that is, you know, how do I see instances of my students in the curriculum and how? How is are they like the like our speaker yesterday? Are they pr- the protagonist? Are they the upstanders? Mm. You know, is it always a victim story? You know, how how are we being authentic with that? And do the students have voice and choice in their work? So some of those are some of the pieces. And then one of the things that I did when I was director of Denver is I asked how how are we getting in the way? of identifying Mm. our Latinx learners, our English language learners, our gifted black learners, because those were our lowest numbers at the time. What are our policies and practices that are perhaps hindering the identification and programming? And that was at a a district level. So taking that, and that's what we put in, that's in the the framework as well. Uh, And those were some of the activities we had people looking through yesterday is like really taking that deep examination and you start with one section don't do it all at once but you know so for me it was let's look at our let's look at our identification practices what do our protocols look like are they written in the heritage language Mm. do families understand are they written in family-friendly language you know do our teachers have the training that they need to understand what to look for so taking those pieces and then going okay where can I then lean in and work with my administration to get a presentation going because sometimes that was not even going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. They're going to be like, no, we don't have time for you, GT person. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was then thinking, where's my sphere of control? So, it, you know, it's it's looking at those each elements and saying, what can I tackle this year? Like my policies and practices that I think I can actually make a move on. Mm-hmm. Man, and I'm encouraged by this, and I, I can put it in the context of, of my own district, is, is so much of this is policy and practices, but I, I'm really walking away from this conversation, too, of just engaging that community. And, you know, I think a lot about, you know, if you're a parent out there and you get a letter that says you're, you're, we're asking yes. for permission to screen your student for GT, how do they receive that message? Does that mean something? Yes. Does it mean something negative, something positive? Does it not mean anything at all? You know, are they able to see other students like their students being successful in a way that's meaningful for them? There's, there's, I guess there's all that sort of context that I hear a lot of this with that I'm, it encourages me to go back and work on that. So one of the things, Michael, that we did is that we actually gave our families our letters. Hmm. Like, so we brought the families together and we said, would you be willing to be a work group? And they were like, yes. And these were African-American families. We had Latino families there. Uh, we had some white families there as well. But this was, we did that. And then with our black family group, we asked them the same thing. Wow. Look at our letters. Look at our website. What is or what's not working? 
we took their feedback, we changed things. Wow. And then we gave it back to them again. Is this okay? What does this look like? And they're like, yes, this works. No, this doesn't. And so we took their feedback and actively, it became a true collaboration, not just a, I'll take your feedback, thank you, which sometimes that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. But if this was true family engagement mm -hmm. and collaboration, they had their voice in our letters. They had their voice on our website. That's how we yeah. made that change. Made something greater together. Yes. That's very cool. Well, this is awesome, and we're, we're up against it a little bit, so I'm going to segue to our Fast Five questions and learn a little bit more about you. I know everybody's so excited about my Fast Five questions. Maybe <laughs> it's just me. I'm not sure. All right, just so people can, you know, interact to get to know you Coloradans. Is that how they say it? I don't know. Coloradians? Coloradans. Coloradans. Yeah. Coloradans. Coloradans. I'm from Texas. I'm from Texas. I still pronounce it incorrectly. Yeah, Coloradans. I don't know. Coloradans. It's Arvada, not Arvada. <laughs> All right, question one. If your closest friends had to describe your number one strength, they would say it is what? These are supposed to be rapid fire, right? Rapid fire. <laughs> Just the first thing that comes to mind. What do you think? And it's strength, so, okay. you know. Okay, kindness. Uh, nice. Sarcasm. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> it is a strength of hers. You're affirming her decision there? I am, I am. <laughs> Oh, cheerleader. That would also be another one. I'm cheerleader. a cheerleader. Yeah, I see it in action. All right, question two. If you had to choose a cartoon character oh, that God. best represents yes. you, well, this is like the most difficult question I feel like I've asked ever. It I get is. <laughs> what, what comes to mind? What cartoon characters do you think? So I've been researching this. Just you have so been? Know, yes. So I have chosen Dora the Explorer. That's a great option. What, can I ask why you picked that? Well, I have the haircut. Okay. Right? <laughs> Step one, yeah. And my son says I look like Dora. Okay. Secondly, she has friends who guides her along the way. She mm -hmm. always has like a problem to solve. She's mm -hmm. got a path to get there. And she speaks Spanish in like yeah. sentences, which is about what I speak in. <laughs> so I think that fits me pretty well. Right. Swiper, no swiping. Yes. That's, a, that's a deep cut. My, yes. my kids are into it. Yes, what would you say? Okay, so of course, like indecisive here. I feel like I'm a combination. Like I can't be pinned down that's to great. one, right? Yeah. So I'm a combination of Joy from Inside Out meets Penny from Inspector Gadget meets Leela from... <laughs> Because uh -huh. <laughs> I asked my husband, and he's like, oh, I think Leela. Leela, yeah. Yeah, I was like, he's like, you're totally like a Leela. <laughs> and um, I'm like, wow, I'm glad. I'm, what? No, thanks. And then a little bit of Linda Belcher in there. Okay, you know, yeah, from Bob's, Bob's Burgers. Burgers, yeah. yeah. Um, but really, you know, when we were talking about this and thinking about joy, because what I try to make sure I bring to our leadership, my leadership to my teens is, like, we can do this. We can but in order to do that, we do have to also recognize the sadness, the disgust, the anger, mm. and those kinds of things, which is what Joy learned at the end, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I, I really do. Like, Joy came to mind, and then, yeah. you know. So, yeah, but I'm a little bit of all of those people. That's a, that's a great answer, and I could tell. <laughs> I could tell. That's great. Like, a little bit, because Robin's a little discombobulated. No, it's all right. <laughs> that's all right. Hey, this is, this is gifted education for you. Question three. <laughs> What's one strategy you wish you used in your first few years of teaching that you didn't know until now? You're like, man, if I could just go back and tell that young teacher you should blank, what would it be? Well, I started out teaching music. Uh -huh. um, so I would say um, 
it's interesting as a Latina teacher, you can speak to your Latina students differently than if you're a white teacher speaking to your Latina students. So I do remember telling my students, you know, they need to work harder, right, because then you get a better job. But I think the way that I probably said it wasn't really culture responsive. And I regret that. So I think that's one of the things I've learned over time. Yeah, like, what were you doing? Like, I just didn't have that background hmm. to really um, know how to address them in a manner that I felt was more respectful. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Totally would have taken out the white savior complex. Uh, hmm. So, you know, coming in and uh, would have honored the, you know, the different um, styles of language. And yes, we, I allowed, like, allowed, see, the, the you know, people, could, students could speak different, you know, languages, of course, but like, I remember hearing, you know, if like, the black vernacular was spoken, you know, kind of had the same reaction, you know, and, and that would be stopped right there, in there. And then that white savior complex of like, you know, I grew up poor and I'm gonna help all of these poor kids grow. And like, no, that would be, so it would have been a more culturally responsive classroom mm. from the beginning in that way. Mm. Very good. All right, y'all are doing great. Question four. Who is one person you could not imagine being without in your educational journey? There was that one person, it's like, man, they really impacted me and my growth in your, in, as an educator. And it, it could be someone in your personal life too, uh, who was always there for you, really encouraged you or helped you grow. I was thinking about Einstein. Yeah? And I say that, I did a lot of research on, on Einstein and some other great figures when I was a kid. Um, I would say that because I love the idea that there's all these theories that were thrown out there mm. that were unbelievable, right? And now they're coming true, right? And just, I feel like, I feel like there's so much more that we can do that we don't know we can do, right? And we vision it and we don't know what's going to happen, but it will happen. So there's something about researching little bibliotherapy type stuff, researching a um, a gifted person that kind of unleashed these possibilities in your own heart and mind. Uh, that's really cool. That's great. What do you think, Robin? I would say Mrs. Rourke, my first grade teacher. All right. <laughs> so, it's always fun when someone brings up a teacher they had, for sure. Yeah, yeah. She was, she had such an impression upon me, obviously. I'm now in my 40s and still remember, uh, but you know, it was a, a really interesting time in my life. And mm. she, she made me believe that no matter what happened, I would be okay. Mm. And, you know, I took that as far as education goes to know that I could help support others in that way. Wow, very cool. Okay, last question. If you had to tell teachers, and I usually ask this question, if you had to tell teachers to do one thing to develop student potential, what would it be? Believe in them. Hmm. Believe that they can. See them from a strength-based perspective. That's what I was going to say. See them. See them. We hear that um, with our advisory council, the equity advisory council, the district level, that the kids want to be seen. Hmm. That's coming straight from them. Right? See who I am. Powerful and a great way to start to wrap this up. Thank you all so much. How can we find out if you have some listeners out there like, man, I want to find out more about these two. 
where do they go? Social media or email or what do you think? Yeah, so we'd love for you to visit um, Mosaic Minds uh, LLC. Dot org, uh, or you could email it, us. It felt at, like you were making it up. As I know, you went. right? It totally did. It totally did. <laughs> I was like, wait, do we what? Um, or you could email us at mosaicminesllc at gmail.com. Um, or you could email us rgreen, that's R G R E E N E, one two, at gmail.com. Or michelle.dubois at bvsd.org. Very cool. We're so glad to have y'all. Thanks again for our guest today, Robin and Michelle. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at RanzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.